0: Well, good morning. My name is Chris Majeski. I'm one of the pastors here. I also want to welcome you to ACC. So glad you're here, whether you're in person or you're online. We're grateful you're with us this morning. Uh, we're, we're glad to be with you to worship. Uh, and so uh, we're continuing on in our Believe series. We're working our way through the Gospel of John, uh, looking at the life of Jesus and understanding him so that we may believe in him. Uh, that's the purpose of John's gospel. That's what he says he's writing it for so that we will know Jesus and believe he is who he says he is. And so uh, as we before, before we jump into looking at the passage, I want to share with you a story. Uh, and actually, before I do that, I want to talk about Unplugged Camp. I, re- I remembered that when I was standing here, and I forgot it when I got on stage. Uh, uh, Denise just talked about Unplugged Camp, and I just want to encourage you, uh, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, my family, uh, you heard a family, the Kunzer family, uh, cheering, they, they go to Unplugged camp, a number, a number of ACC families. We've had as many as seven ACC families there. Uh, uh, I think we've got about five or six for next year. Um, it's a great experience, a lot of fun. It takes place in beautiful Lake Geneva area. You're on the lake the whole time for the week, um, and so uh, really a great experience, uh, and it's a great time with some cool people, uh, some other, other ACC families. Uh, but this is available, like grandparents. If you want to bring your grandkids, uh, that's an option. Uh, single parents, that's an option. Uh, you know, If you've got kids who are teenagers, there's stuff for them. If you've got kids who really little, there's stuff for them. Uh, it's a great experience and we'd love to, love to talk with you more about it. So if you're at all interested, come see, come see me after church next Sunday after the, the service and, and we'd love to have you be a part of that information meeting uh, so you can learn more about it and see if it's right for your family uh so the story I want to tell you about uh the uh, uh, something recently in my life that actually illustrates what we're talking about this morning It kind of sets the groundwork for us helps us to to think about the the principle that we see here in john uh John's passage today uh, so I've mentioned I'm a baseball coach my son plays travel baseball uh and um I'm, I'm one of the coaches on the team um, and it, it, this year it is time for him to get a new baseball bat uh and, and if you if you have uh, have kids in that stage or had kids in that stage where they were at that uh, higher level of baseball, those bats are very expensive, very expensive. Uh, and it, the previous bat he had was good for two years. This will be th- his third season. We've got a lot of life out of this thing. But here's the thing. For next year, it can only be used for one year. Then the, the weight restrictions change. And so it's like we're getting him this bat for one year, and I really don't want to spend all this money on it. But but here's the, here's the thing I was thinking about with this. As we're shopping for this, as we're looking for this new bat, uh, we're, we're planning, we're figuring out what's best for our family and what's best for him. Him and what's gonna, gonna, gonna fit his swing style and his contact, all that kind of stuff that he makes. So, we're planning all this, it doesn't mean his previous bat was bad or wrong. It actually was a very good bat, and he'll continue using it this season. He can use it this season. Uh, beyond this season, he won't be able to, uh, but he needs a new one. It's time for something new. The circumstances have changed, and this previous bat, it, it, it's time to put that one to rest and, and take on the new one. Uh, and maybe you can relate to that. I mean, uh, this principle of needing to replace things, uh, we replace our clothes. Uh, maybe we've grown or grown. Um, I guess we could shrink. That just doesn't always happen for me. But, um, but uh, we need to replace our clothes. We need to update them, right? There's, there's a need to, 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 to replace. It doesn't mean the old clothes were bad. It's just time for something new, um, or, or or maybe in in, in your career, uh, the company has changed. They've grown, they've expanded, and, and your role has changed. And so now you need to learn some new things. You need to, to kind of a new role you're going to play. Doesn't mean your old role was bad or that you were de- uh, you know that, that it was deficient in some way. It's time for a new thing in this new season. Uh, and so the concept here of changing and of new and and uh, and updating this kind of stuff—it's it's familiar to us. We do this all the time. I mean, you even think of—we used to record the sermon on CDs and then you could pick them up at the welcome center. We don't need to do that anymore because the internet's everywhere and you can just, you know, pull it up on your pocket computer that you keep around with, with you all day. Um, so the, the things changed, right? They're different. And so what we, what we see here in this passage, this very familiar passage where Jesus clears out the temple. Uh, he, there, there's stuff happening in the temple he's really upset about and he, he clears it out. What we see here is that Jesus is signaling that he's giving us a new way, He's giving us a better way, that it's time for an update. It's time for a new way. Uh, so let's go ahead and read the passage, uh, John 2, 13 through 22. It'll be up on the screen if you have your own Bible. I encourage you to follow along there as well. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? they exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said. Let's pray and invite God to teach us. Father, thank you for this morning and this chance to gather together as your people, to gather to worship you. And we've done that through uh, connecting with one another in conversation and fellowship and, and through, it, through singing of songs and the giving of our offerings. And we do it now as we turn our hearts to your word. Would you help us to understand the scriptures that we may know you better and believe in your son? In Jesus' name, amen. So we've got this scene where Jesus comes into the temple, and, and he sees this, this marketplace that's happening. They're selling animals for sacrifices, and there's money exchange, a currency exchange thing going on. And, and, and he, he doesn't like it. And he drives out the animals and, the, and the, the merchants, and he turns over the money tables. He says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then we have the religious leaders of the day challenge him, just the same as they challenged John the Baptist. A few, a few chapters earlier we read, John the Baptist was st- ruffling feathers, stirring up some of the, uh, the, the religious establishment, and they went and challenged him on why he had the authority to do this. And, 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 and So they do it to Jesus here as well. They challenge, by, by what authority do you have to do this? And, and they actually then they say something significant. They say, they say give us a miracle to prove that you, that you can do that. Show us a miracle to prove it. Remember John, uh, we learned, Dave, as Dave talked about last week the Gospel of John signs miracles point to Jesus divinity they point to him as uh, God's son and so uh, they're saying hey give us give us a miracle right and and so uh, uh, and Jesus replies with this kind of cryptic statement about destroying the temple and he'll raise it again in three days interestingly enough that phrase is one of the phrases that they use in his uh, in his his, his, uh, his his trial, right? They use it in his trial, and they twist it. They twist his words. They say, "I heard him say he would destroy the temple." It's not what he said here. Essentially, he leaves it. He says, "If the temple, if this temple is destroyed, I will raise it in three days." He doesn't say he would, but they take these words, they twist it. That's interesting. They they do that later on. Uh, this significant moment here. This comes up later in Jesus' trial. Uh, but then we have this, This uh, they, they think he's talking about the physical temple, but John says, hey, he was actually talking about his body, and the disciples, they connected that dots, and it took them a while to get there. It was after Jesus' death and resurrection, like, oh, that's what he meant back there when he said that about the temple, right? So they're connecting the dots. So this is the picture we have. This is the, the, the story we have. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a very memorable story, this very vivid scene of Jesus turning over tables and scattering animals, and, and it challenges the perception some of us have of Jesus as being this soft, gentle, meek, and mild man, and he was... Was also serious and got down to business and and held a line and and uh, and stood against injustice. Right, uh, but here's some things we see here. I want us to, I want us to uh, not just not just uh, uh, be overcome with the the kind of chaotic scene here and the vivid scene that here, but understand what's really going on here. Uh, understand some of the deeper meaning that's happening here because the religious leaders. Missed the deeper meaning that Jesus was trying to communicate. And it took the disciples a while to connect the deeper meaning, but we have the benefit now of their insight as we look back. John gives us something really important in the first verse. He says that it's nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. The Jewish Passover celebration. If you remember, if you understand, if, you, if, you, if you've learned about, and you, and you know what the Passover was about, when uh, God's people, Israelites, were in slavery in Egypt, uh, and, and uh, God sent Moses to, to uh, tell Pharaoh to let his people go, um, and Pharaoh wouldn't do it, then there were some plagues that happened, right? And, and then the, uh, each of those, Pharaoh said he still wouldn't let him go, and then finally there's this warning that there'd be this plague of the firstborn son. Uh, that the firstborn child in every family would, the uh, firstborn son in every, every family would, would die. Uh, this, this final warning. And, and God gave provision for his people. The angel of death would come a, a, that night, and he said, For his people, take a lamb into your home and, and, and kill the lamb, and then eat the lamb, and then use the blood of the lamb and wipe it on the doorpost of your house, the frame of your house. And then when the angel of death comes, he'll see that that lamb paid the price, and he'll pass over your house, and no one will be hurt. Everyone will be safe. And so we see in the Passover celebration, they, they, they remember this, and they, they commemorate it every year, and it's a big day for them. A big, it's a week-long uh, 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 celebration. But we see in Passover that a sacrifice of a lamb saved God's people. The sacrifice of a lamb saved God's people. And so this is the moment that Jesus chooses to make this statement in the temple as Passover approaches. Also significant about Passover is that, that, uh, that this was a very busy time. It was required that every man, 12, every Jewish man 12 years old and above, would go to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, at the temple in Jerusalem. If it was at all possible for them to get there, they would travel from, from wherever they were to get to the temple and to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. In fact, we know that, that Mary and Joseph did this with Jesus. When he turned 12, he went with them to the temple and, uh, to celebrate Passover. And then they forget about him, and they leave, and they have to come back and get him three days later. That's a, that's a different story. But the idea here is we see that, that they did this. This was a, a, the practice of the Jews of this time period, is going to Jerusalem for Passover. And so there'd be a lot of visitors. It'd be one of the busiest times of year for the temple. And it's one of the most significant moments in all the Jewish religious calendar. And this is the moment that Jesus chooses. And so as we think of this colorful scene, right, it's easier, as I said, it's easy to miss the deeper understanding of what's happening here. Uh, Let's look at what some, there's two things that are really significant that are happening here. First one is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, He's fulfilling prophecy in this moment when he drives out the animals and turns over the tables and says, you're, you're making my father's house into a marketplace. It was foretold that the Messiah would challenge the religious establishment and he would refine God's people and their worship of God. The Messiah would ruffle feathers, would change things up, and he would refine the worship of God, refine God's people in their worship of him. Look at Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Look, I am sending my messenger And he will prepare the way before me. Speaking of John the Baptist, the messenger, the forerunner, right? Then it says, Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Now we're talking about Jesus coming to the temple here. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal. Or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes, he will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. And so here is what is spoken of the Messiah is that he would shake things up and that he would refine the 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 worship system of, of, of God's people. And then John goes on to quote, uh, he says they remembered, this, it was prophesied about him, that passion for God's house would consume him. That's a quote from Psalm 69.9, speaking of the Messiah, that the passion for God's house would consume him, or zeal for God's house would, would consume him. The religious leaders he see what's happening with Jesus, and they challenge his authority, and they demand a miraculous sign to prove it, and they missed that him cleansing the temple was the miraculous sign. He's fulfilling prophecy in their midst. He's saying, this is the sign I just gave you right here. The scripture said I would do this. I've just done this. It's happened in the midst, right, right in the midst of you and you haven't noticed it. They miss it. They miss that that was the sign. A second thing that's happening here, and Jesus is not only fulfilling prophecy, he's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be God. He says the words, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace, my father's house. This is unusual language. For, for the Jews, God is so separate and to be revered that this kind of close relationship, calling him his father, that this kind of closeness would have been offensive. To call God his father would have, been, would have been startling to the people of Jesus' day. And it's also the language that Jesus used at 12 when he was left behind at the temple. He says, why were you worried? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? So this is the way Jesus uses to refer to God as his father, this close, intimate relationship. And he says, and he says this, uh, uh, the, the, we're talking about the temple, he says you've turned this, this place in, into, into a marketplace. The temple was a very special place. Exodus 25.8 tells us this about this. Uh, this is this, this is first the tabernacle building of the tabernacle. This was the temporary. They, they were traveling around as this this set of this tent that act as their temporary worship space. That that was that was what they, uh, what they used. And then eventually uh, the temple would be built as the more per, as the permanent structure, one location. But here's Exodus twenty-five telling about this. Have the people of Israel Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. This is what the temple is to be. It's to be the place that God dwells. It's the place uh, that, that heaven and earth align in that sense, that God's glory dwells there. It represents his presence for his people. Here's, here's a, in 1 Kings 8, uh, 10 through 11. This is the temple being built now, and, and the, this is the dedication of the temple, and here's what it says. When the priest came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And so for the Jews, the temple represented God's presence among them. It was the dwelling place of his glory. And Jesus says in verse 19 that if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Do you hear what he's saying? If the temple is a dwelling place of God and he's talking about his body as this temple, he's just said that he is the dwelling place of God. John tells us, we remember he was talking about his body. He said, destroy this temple. He referred to his body as the temple. He is saying he's the dwelling place of God. He's claiming to be God. Interestingly enough, this phrase, this, this phrase that he uses here, this sentence in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It's intentionally cryptic. Jesus does this over and over again, where he, he uses language that you've got to be really open and ready to explore. And if you're just ready to, to dismiss him, you'll miss it entirely. And that's what happened here. They missed entirely what he was saying. The term for destroy that he uses there, it can be used of a physical building, but it can also be used of the destruction of the human body. It's an intentional double meaning there. They missed that. They were so focused on the physical building they were standing in, They missed that he had opened the door that he might be talking about more than that. The term used for temple that he uses here, it could be used of the sacred temple in Jerusalem, the one they're standing in, but it could also mean the physical frame of a human being. Again, he uses an intentional double meaning there. And then the term used for raise up that can, be, uh, that can mean rebuilding a structure, like kind of brick by brick, brick rebuilding, right? But it can also mean resuscitation of a person. And so this phrase that he uses here, this, this sentence that he uses, he's intentionally pointing to the fact that he is the temple and that his body will be destroyed, but that he will rise again in three days. He's claiming to be God in this veiled statement he's making, and they totally miss that. The temple was only temporary. It was never meant to be the final uh, source of God's presence in the world. Just like the tabernacle was a temporary option that they, they moved around, then the temple became the replacement of it. Now Jesus is signaling that he is the replacement of the temple, that he will be replacing it. So as we understand what's really happening here, the deeper meaning of what's happening here, I think then we can see some things about how Jesus is refining worship, how he's, how he's giving us a better way, a new way. And there's three things that I see. The first is that Jesus stands for treating others with dignity and respect. That that is a part of what it means to really worship God, is to treat others with dignity and respect. We have here in this scene, I talked about these merchants and these money changers that Jesus is upset with. And and, and at that time period, there was debate about whether or not this was right to have this in the temple. And there were a bunch of people who said, this is really not okay, this shouldn't be happening. And then there was a bunch of people... Interestingly enough, the ones who were in power, who profited from it, who actually said, no, this does make sense and it's right and good and we should do it, and they got their way. And so we have in this system, we have evidence of exploitation. And now, even if there wasn't exploitation, it would have been a problem for Jesus. But the fact that there is exploitation, this is even bigger. This is meaning they are not treating others with dignity and respect. There's, there's corruption here. There's exploitation here. And so what, what I'm talking about here is they had to pay a temple tax and it had to be done in a Jewish coin. That's fine. That needs, that's, that's fine if that's the rule, okay? But what would happen is all these people coming from foreign places, they would have to exchange their money so that they can get the Jewish coin to pay it with. And of course then there'd be fees about that. And who knows if they're actually, the scales are actually balanced and they're, they're giving proper exchange rates and that kind of thing. But there's evidence that there's exploitation happening here. Their greed is getting the better of them, and they're 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 exploiting people as they come to worship God, or the animals to be sacrificed. They 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 need, they, they wanted to offer a sacrifice that was part of the, the 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 Passover celebration, and they could bring their own animal, but guess what? It would have to pass inspection, and guess who the pocket the inspectors were in? The religious leaders who profited from all this, and so their animal might pass, it might not, but they could buy one there, guaranteed that it'll pass. And so there's exploitation happening here, right? And so as we see the New Testament, there are, it's full of commands of how we should treat one another. Maybe you think of, as I talk about that, you think of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? The golden rule. And these are all good. They're good things and they're important things. But there's something even deeper going on when God's talking to us about how we should treat others. It's not just about being nice or or you know wanting to, them to treat us you know, you know, respectfully, that kind of thing. There's something far deeper than that. And it's the core of why these why these, these commands are there. And that's that's uh, we see it, the idea we see it in Genesis 1. It says that we are created in the image of God, that each of us is inherently value, valuable, inherently valuable because we are created in God's image. That you haven't looked at a per, another person in the world. You have never locked eyes with another person in the world that God didn't love dearly. We are his dearly loved creations and we bear his image. And so when we mistreat someone, when we, when we, uh, when we treat them uh, harshly or, or unfairly or dishonestly, we are maligning the image of God. We are devaluing something that God loves. Devaluing something that God created. And so our value is based on the fact that we are created in God's image. And James talks about this, that there's a connection between our worship and how we treat others. In James 3, uh, verse 9, um, he talks about this in talking about our tongues. He says that our tongues, sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who've been made in his image. He's saying there's a disconnect here. That there's a relationship between our worship of God and the way we connect with others, our relationship with others. That there's a connection here. That we give God glory and we praise him and we recognize how valuable and how great he is, but then we're, we're really off base when we don't recognize that in the people around us and we curse them or mistreat them or speak harshly about them or unfairly about them. God hates dishonesty and exploitation because it's the mistreatment of his creation, because it's the intentional devaluing of something he loves and he created. In Galatians 6, it talks a little bit more about this in verses 7 through 10. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. That's kind of what was happening in the temple. They're setting up this worship system. We're going to do this good thing, but they're actually using it for really really ugly purpose their selfishness their greed they're mocking the justice of god you will always harvest what you plant those who live only to satisfy their own sinful natures will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature but those who live to please the spirit will harvest everlasting life from the spirit so let us not get tired of doing what is good at just the right time we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. So in Galatians, it's telling us that that if we allow our sinful desires and our sinful nature, our selfish desires and our sinful nature to to rule the day, to rule our lives and to to guide our thinking, it's going to lead us down some really bad paths, and God, God, God will have a problem with that. But instead, if we respond to God's spirit within us and, and we live for truth and we do the things that we know we should do and we live in a way that honors God, that that will bring about good things, reward. It will bring about uh, this, 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 the, the, uh, the, the joy of God in our life as he is ple- pleased with us for that as we honor him and give our lives to him. So there's something important about the way we treat others and how it, in our relationship with God. And, and this passage reminds us that the mistreatment of others can show up in smaller ways, like dishonesty or harsh words, but can also show up in much bigger ways, in things like prejudice and racism. Jesus is ridding the temple because th- this, this behavior has no place among God's people. He's ridding the temple of this behavior. We also see that Jesus stands for equality for all. Equality for all. And let me let me understand. Let me, let me distinguish what I mean here. Let me help, help you understand what I mean here because through our American lens we hear equality for all and we jump to you know, uh, rights of every person and equal opportunities and things like that. And that's a good thing and we should. I think we should advocate for that. That's not what I'm saying about this here and that's not what I see the scriptures saying here. What I see the scriptures are saying is that we are all equal before God. That we are all welcome at the foot of the cross. That it is common ground. That all people are welcome. So this scene takes place in what's called the, the, the court of the Gentiles. And the way the temple was set up, the innermost space is where the, the, the priests would go. And then there was a series of courts divided by walls and gates. And certain people were allowed in certain places. The outermost court was the court of Gentiles. Those who were not ethnically Jewish could not come in any further. They had to stay out in this outer court area. And this was standard practice. It was assumed because they weren't ethnically Jewish, they could not come any closer to God's presence. The innermost part being God's presence. And, 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 and the, Jesus is saying this is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's, there's an element here of him saying this is not what this is supposed to be. Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul talks about this. He says, after all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. And so Jesus is going gonna to wipe the slate clean and say, this temple structure you've got set up, this is not okay. God is the God of, of, of all people, and, and, and they're all welcome in his presence. He's breaking down those walls. That's why in, in his death, the temple veil, the curtain was torn in two, symbolizing the separation is no longer there. But as we understand the temple, there was the court of Gentiles, and then there was more walls. There was a next court where women could, Jewish women could go, but they could go no further. Another court where uh, Jewish men could go, but they could go no further. And then another court, another section where the priests could go. And so layer upon layer upon layer of separation. Jesus is upset here that there is a there's barriers to God. That they are placing barriers before, that, before people. And so his message, he's bringing, he's, he's bringing a new message. And it's actually an old one that he is now making possible. It goes back to the Garden of Eden and how Adam and Eve were present with God with no, no, no separation. And Jesus is bringing us closer to that. He is breaking down those walls so that we can be, uh, be in the presence of God with no more barriers. Isaiah 56.7 says this, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with my joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is God's plan, and it was God's plan for, for, for his people from the beginning, is that it would be for all people and all nations. And so this exclusion and elitism that we see here is counter to the gospel message. Jesus breaks down those walls, and we all stand at common ground at the foot of the cross. A third thing that we see here is that Jesus stands for pure worship, pure worship, unadulterated worship, the previous story in John, chapter 2, Dave preached about last week, Jesus turning water into wine. So uh, the first sign, and, and John's gospel, there's seven signs, right, that, that he points to that, that, uh, that demonstrate who Jesus is. Uh, but the first sign of turning water into wine, the three other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record this, this, this really interesting phrase that Jesus says um, about, about wine. Uh, it's a little cryptic, but he says this. Let's read Luke 5, 37 and 38. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins for the new wine would burst the wine skins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wine skins, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. and so John, as he 's building his story so that we may understand Jesus and believe him he 's linking these stories for us. We have jesus who 's who turns water into wine, giving a new wine. And he had this, this phrase here that he talks about this wineskin. The old wineskin would have been stretched from the wine as it fermented. The new wine that would go in then would stretch it more, and it would break it, and it would be worthless then. It would, it would spill the wine, and it would be, uh, the, the wineskin would no longer be good. He says a new wine needs a new wineskin. And Jesus is pointing it to himself here and saying the temple is the old wineskin. It's time for it to be done. He is going to replace it. He is the new wine and the new wineskin. He is the new way of connecting with God. Interestingly enough, in the, in the, 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 the turning of, miracle of turning water into wine, the jars, the big uh, things they fill with water, they were, they were used for ceremonial washing. For ceremonial washing. Again, John is indicating for us this new way of worshiping where Jesus washes ev- makes everyone clean and able to be at the presence of God. The Jews had laws of you're unclean, you couldn't be here. you're, You're a Gentile, you're unclean, you can't be in the presence of God. Jesus is washing us all clean so that we can be present in God. He is the new wine, and he's signaling that he is doing a new thing, giving us a better way. And so Jesus is the fulfillment and replacement of all the Jewish festivals and institutions, even the temple. No longer will God's presence dwell in the temple. It will dwell in those who place their trust in Jesus. He says he is the temple. And then we are told the Holy Spirit will reside in us, and we are God's temple. In, in, in uh, 1 Peter, it says that we, uh, that, uh, we are, are like living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. No longer is it this just physical structure where, where, there, where God dwells. It is he dwells within us. We are little temples, and we go out into the world. Pure worship is us going out into the world as the presence of God to the world. And that means that every moment of every day is a sacred moment, is a holy moment, as we are the presence of God, or God is present with us and using us in our world. And so when you're washing dishes, that's a holy moment. That's a stretch, I know. Uh, But you get the point. Uh, But you get the point. Everything we do could be an act of worship. When you're raising little children and loving them and caring for them, it's a holy moment. When you're at work and you're being a good employee and you're giving your best and you're standing for honesty and integrity, it's an act of worship. We are the temple of God that he is building into this spiritual house. So Jesus is showing us that worshiping God is something that takes place in our everyday lives and it involves every aspect of our lives. James 1.27 talks about this. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So James talks about this, how this worship of God shows up in itself and how we, how we treat others. And in in the, the the not letting the world corrupt us. This is what happened in the temple. They were mistreating people who 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 they're exploiting people, right? They're mistreating people. They're not not properly treating these people in need. And they were they were letting the corruption of the world, the greed take over. He's saying this stuff matters. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So pure worship involves this, this giving of our entire lives, this turning it over to God and allowing him to transform us and transform our minds so that we can be his presence in the world around us. So as we consider this, I have two questions for us. The first, have you embraced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Remember Passover, a lamb saved, the sacrifice of a lamb saved God's people. And Jesus takes this moment to, clear, to cleanse the temple to point to himself as the ultimate sacrifice. No longer would sac- animal sacrifices be needed because he is the ultimate sacrifice. John the Baptist says, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus in the temple is saying he is the lamb of God who offers us the forgiveness of our sins. John wrote this gospel so that you may know Jesus and you may believe So if you haven't embraced Jesus as your Savior, I'd love to have a conversation with you before you leave. Second question, and I think this is is significant, it'd be easy for us to read this and to look at those people and say, man, they got it really wrong. Look at those people in the temple. I can't believe how they let greed and corruption get in there. We would never be like that. But I think disciples of Jesus are more humble than that. And we're willing to consider and be open to what Jesus might have to say to us. And so I'd ask you, how are you tempted to trade pure worship for a lesser version. The human tendency is to let the beautiful message of Jesus be tainted with our own agenda and our own selfishness. How are you tempted to let those, that agenda or your selfishness seep into your beliefs and your theology and how you worship? What would Jesus say if he showed up in the middle of our worship service here at ACC? I hope he'd say, good job guys, you're doing good. But as a, as a, a, a humble follower of him, I'd be open there's something he sees that we need to address i'd want to hear it and how what would he say if he showed up in the middle of your personal faith walk i hope he'd say good good job you're doing great but i'd hope you'd also be humble enough to say jesus if there's something i need to learn i want to learn it i want to be a better follower of you so maybe we'd be people who follow in jesus footsteps treating everyone with dignity and respect welcoming all people as equal before god at the foot of the cross and worshiping him with our whole lives.